This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Can we learn some profound things about the impact of technology on our world and our lives from a voice that spoke to us a hundred years ago? How could someone writing in the 1920s possibly glimpse what we'd be facing in our highly technological world as we approach the 2020s? Well, it may seem unlikely, but it is indeed true that the Catholic priest, theologian, early media and technology scholar Romano Gordini glimpsed well in advance where we were heading in the modern world. My guest today is not Romano Guardini. He's not available. But instead, Robert Duncan, who is completing a documentary on Guardini's letters from Lake Como that deal deeply with the questions of technology and culture. Robert Duncan himself is an award-winning multimedia journalist from the Rome Bureau of the Catholic News Service. He was born and raised in North Carolina. He studied film, television, journalism, and philosophy at New York University. And he now resides in the countryside, near Rome, with his family. He joins me, Leonard DiLorenzo, on today's episode of Church Life Today, brought to you by the McGrath Institute for Church Life and Redeemer Radio. Robert Duncan, welcome to the show. Good to be here. So you're currently working on this documentary film about Romano Guardini's letters from Lake Como, in which 100 years ago, Guardini was deeply reflecting on the impact of technology and the development of culture. Let's just start, like, where did this idea for this project come from? How did it land in your lap? Okay, uh, I'm a journalist, and I went to film school. I always wanted to tell stories, and the reason I wanted to tell stories is part of the answer to your question. Mm -hmm. Uh, It had to do with my relationship with my maternal grandmother, who I spent a lot of time with growing up, and she was part of the greatest generation, and she grew up before... I mean, I think she must have been eight years old when she first heard the name Hitler. So she knew a a very different world than the world of my childhood and the world of most of the 20th century as a child. Mm -hmm. And she would tell me stories, because I think I would ask, of what it was like to grow up at that time. And perhaps like anyone of that generation, she was uh, a bit nostalgic, painted a rosy picture of that world that wasn't uh, a total one, but at the same time, some of what would come through to me and that I would understand later in more conceptual terms was the nature of leisure and play Mm. that was important to her, the nature of domestic life that she experienced. And my grandmother wasn't, you know, super philosophical about about this. It, It just came through naturally, the admiration for that way of life. And In a very grandmotherly way, she was critical of the way I lived my childhood, Mm. which was often uh, before screens, either television or video games. And so in my relationship to my grandmother, um, I I was able to understand a bit about the world that I was growing up in as being different from hers. And that enabled me to develop from, I think, a young age, a kind of critical and reflective attitude towards my own life. So that's part of this project that I'm working on, which is about technology. And the other part that's also 
I think due to her is part of what my grandmother and I would do uh, when we would spend time together is write stories together. Really? We would write stories about animals or about dogs and, and, and we would illustrate them with stickers and things like this. And I remember one thing that always impressed me was her, her uh, shorthand uh-huh. and looking at, at the quality of her handwriting yeah. and, and just not seeing this in my own or even, you know, the next generation, yeah. her, you know. Uh, adults, uh, you know, my teachers at elementary school, uh, there was something just in, in almost every way sort of mysterious about her generation to me. And so those two things together, but I, I think are important for understanding the project I'm working on as inspirations. Yeah. So many people probably haven't read these letters from Lake Como. Many people have, but for those who don't know, Guardini, who goes from Germany in the north where he was raised. He's Italian by descent, but he's raised in Germany and goes down to Lake Como uh, in the 1920s, middle of his life. Um, And something about being there and the movement from the north in Germany down into the northern part of Italy, but south, right? And to this natural setting has awakened these reflections in him. So it's very interesting that you're talking about this these memories of your relationship with your grandmother that have stayed with you as sort of awakening these kind of memories. What was it, you've been to Lake Como, what was it, do you think, for Guardini and being there that might have awakened these things? Well, I believe at the time that Guardini wrote the letters, he was living in Berlin in the middle of the Weimar Republic and at a time in which now, from the long view historically, Germany was marching quickly towards a a kind of techno-industrial and political situation which would make the Second World War possible. Mm -hmm. And that was a big part of his life. Uh, He lived in Berlin, uh, I I believe, at that stage. And, And so coming to his ancestral home, which was Italy, made it very obvious, visually obvious, how how different the modern world, the world that was coming into being was from the world of his own past, his own ancestral past. And so just crossing that transalpine line and mm-hmm. coming through the mountains and entering into the northern Italian peninsula, he he's almost transported back several decades in time. Mm-hmm. And he sees not only the world of mid-19th century, but that world was also the same world that existed for generations before. It was the world of tradition. It was the world in which human beings lived in a way that required a lot of manual labor, that was hard, but also very much in tune with with nature, and that also was very beautiful. Uh, It was naturally beautiful, but it was also the architecture of the towns and the cities and the Renaissance palaces. Uh, which he talks about, and the botanical gardens on Lake Como, all represented a a whole worldview of man living in creation and in a right manner that also reflected uh, ultimately the Catholic relationship between man and his creator. Mm. And it's interesting, you know, like when he went down to Lake Como, there is like, it is like a marker in time. It's a bit like time travel, but you say... He only, it's like he went back a few decades, not hundreds of years, right? He went, it's like he went back a few decades, and by going back a few decades, it was connected to this longer stream of time that spanned 100 years. So this change that he saw between Berlin and the, the quickly industrializing north and Lake Como, which was 
a more naturally intact place, that change had occurred so rapidly. And I think this is part of why my grandmother interested me so much is because even though she was a bit later than, than Guardini, she almost still heard in her own childhood the echoes of this mm. older traditional world. And it's a world that I only experience through people of her generation talking to them. And my children and my children's children will not have that kind of contact to the world of centuries. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that hopefully this project will highlight is just how radically new the entire world is and the world order is. And its very newness should call into question or should lead us to question its basic principles. Mm. You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. We're talking to multimedia journalist Robert Duncan from the Rome Bureau of the Catholic News Service, who is, among other things, presently working on a documentary film about Romano Guardini's Letters from Lake Como, which treat technology and the development of culture. So when this documentary comes out, what should we expect to see? How, how do you go about this work of bringing forward these letters and a little bit of a look into Romano Guardini and what he was recognizing a hundred years ago? So the venue will be EWTN. This is a project for the Eternal World uh, Television Network. And the storytelling strategy, what people will actually see when they watch it, is what's called a docudrama. And so it's a mix of dramatized scenes and the more traditional documentary format with talking heads, experts uh, making commentary on uh, the themes that are outlined in the dramatized scenes. So what we'll see is uh, an actor playing Romano Guardini arriving in Lake Como, having a transformative experience by some of the things he witnesses on the lake. In the letters from Lake Como and in, in the film that I'm making, what spurs his reflections on the relationship between advanced technology and human culture is witnessing those elements of advanced civilization and technology that are already present in the North beginning to creep into Southern Europe. Uh, so, for example, he sees both sailboats, which were the traditional vessel on the lake, uh, as well as motorboats and steamliners, mm. the traghetto, the, uh, the, the sort of um, ferries that would take cars from one side of the lake to the other. Right. He would see um, beautiful towns and hamlets or, or, you know, dotted around the lake, and then a box of a factory with a, a smokestack coming up, sort of brutalizing the landscape. As he would go on hikes, he, he was a big hiker. And in one of the letters, he talks about how he was on the lake for eight hours uh, rowing with his brother. I mean, it's hard work to row. Right. And the distance, he says he traveled on, during the course of those eight hours, it would take an hour in a motorboat to go. So he spent a lot of time on the lake, and one of the other things he saw is, uh, w was the, um, the plow. Uh, one side of the lake at that time was more agricultural, mm -hmm. and he, he saw uh, you know, farmers working with traditional manual tools and then contrasting that with tractors. And, and he would ask himself, that in the difference of these more traditional tools and the existence and contrast of, the, of these new, more modern mechanized tools, what's being lost? What's the inner logic of each of them? And how do the, the use of these new tools and their implementation into the whole economic way that the society works uh, affect not only our relationships with the earth with creation, but also with one another, and then finally with God. In capturing this in film and telling the story as a docudrama, it strikes me that we're coming very quickly up to the time where the bearers of the memory of that change will no longer be there to pass on 
the witness to this change to us directly. So you mentioned your grandmother, my grandparents would be of the same generation. And so our children and our children's children will not have the firsthand witnesses to things like that. Do you think that's part of the importance of capturing this in this way is so that there is a witness to this, a, a viewpoint upon the world in which we live from that perspective when it came into existence? I'm not quite sure I'd put it exactly in those terms because I wouldn't want to run the risk of suggesting that a film or a, mm-hmm. a book is the same thing as a, as a human being, as a witness. Right. But what I do hope it is able to accomplish is to raise awareness about a problem because as one of the, the people I spoke to says, uh, if unless there's a, a common agreement that uh, the rapid advance and progress of technology presents a, a problem in, in terms of human culture, uh, we can't begin to work on a solution. Mm-hmm. So I don't think this is controversial, but I don't think that we're at a, a stage either in the world or the church that we have a problem to be reckoned with. The problem is often when it's discussed talk, uh, discussed in terms of, well, what will this do to jobs? What will this do to advanced warfare? But in terms of how we live our a- everyday life, the life in the home, life in the church, and what does it do to me at my innermost core, even supposedly neutral technologies, communications technologies, uh, I don't think we've begun to uh, – enough of us have begun to ask those questions. That really critical question of what does it mean for who we are? and who I am and what we're becoming. If we can segue there, if you wouldn't mind, like maybe talking about not just your work, but also, you know, in addition to being a a media person, a journalist, a filmmaker, you're a husband, a father, raising two young children. Um, Like all parents, like myself, we have to make decisions about what our home is like, or sometimes we don't make the decisions and our homes just become a way. What kind of thoughts have you had about the culture of the home, about the connections to technology for your children, about what that environment is like? The first thing that I think I should say is that we don't have screens in the home. I have a laptop, uh, (laughs) and so occasionally that will come out when I have to do work. And one thing I like about a laptop as opposed to a desktop computer is not only do I think a desktop computer is sort of an ugly artifact to have in the home, (laughs) but... A laptop can be folded away, tucked away, and hidden away. The general rule is no, no technology in the home. And, and the first thing I'd say about that is that's not necessarily the fruit of having arrived at an absolutely conclusive decision that these devices are bad or harmful. I think there's a lot of evidence, uh, and increasingly the secular media is reporting on this evidence that, the, uh, especially for young children, screen time should be vastly limited or eliminated. Uh, altogether. But it's it's more a kind of instinct that I don't know what the consequences are. And the prudent course of action in that case is, if you don't know what's in the bush, you don't shoot. <laughs> uh, it could be a squirrel. It could be your father who got lost in the woods. Right. On the one hand, our parental choice to have almost no screen time. My, my oldest is four, so at, at the moment, it's not even... It's not even something that we have to wrestle with the desire of our children to have these things. So right now, we're probably at the easiest stage of this this process. But I I think the main thing is that we just don't know what it would do to our children if they were there. And Mm -hmm. uh, I think most parents, especially when 
they have young children want to be the primary influences on their children. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to compete with um, a highly advanced toy that uh, has been designed in Silicon Valley to to be as addictive and as interesting as possible. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. We're talking to multimedia journalist Robert Duncan from the Rome Bureau of Catholic News Service, who is, among other things, presently working on a documentary film about Romano Guardini's Letters from Lake Como, which treat technology and the development of culture. We talked a bit about those letters from Lake Como and your project. Um, You're kind enough to share a little bit about, uh, because I asked, your home life and technology. If you don't mind, talk about another one of your projects. There's many projects, but another one of your projects that you've completed, um, which I'm really fascinated by and drawn to, which is your documentary entitled Faces Among Icons. For those who aren't familiar with that, it focuses on the ruin and rebirth of the Russian Orthodox Church from the perspective of 100 years after the Russian Revolution. Now, for those of us living in the States especially, we may not know very much about that history, about the history in the last hundred years of the Russian Orthodox Church. What did you discover in doing this work? What what have we not seen that you were able to find? So Faces Among Icons was a project for Catholic News Service, and the first question somebody might ask is, why, why would Catholic News Service be interested in the Russian Orthodox Church? Well, the first thing I think to know is that the, the Orthodox Church is the closest to the Catholic Church, and the Russian Church is the largest of the Orthodox Churches. In the spirit of encounter and in the spirit of ecumenism and wanting to find, in the hope of uh, that, as some have said, the first thousand years of Christian history was the millennium of unity, the second that of disunity, and the hope is that the third will be that of unity. I, I believe that those are, are the words of Jack Figgle, who runs the Orientale Lumen Conferences. In that spirit, it would behoove us Catholics to know better who are those brothers and sisters and in the communion closest to us. The other aspect of it is I think that increasingly in, in, in the media, because Russia is increasingly in the news coverage these days for political reasons, the Russian Orthodox Church is covered primarily from the Kremlin and sort of the high church state politics. But if it's the largest Orthodox Church, there are a lot of faces mm-hmm. among those icons. And the hope of this project and what I think it tried to accomplish was to meet some of these Orthodox Christians in Russia. And the fact that the church, their church, the Russian church, has received a a, um, a kind of second wind, a, a second lease on life after the, the long and hard and persecuted period of the Soviet era. This is a kind of a springtime for them. What are some of the signs of that um, that new breath that's been breathed into the Russian Orthodox Church, this kind of springtime or, or new type of flourishing? Like, how, do, how is it being seen? Where is it being made manifest? Well, I can just tell you what I experienced when I was there, and that was we went in to film in large tourist pilgrim churches uh-huh. and small, tiny parishes because of our schedule, we went at all hours of the day, yeah. and they were always full, full, full. They didn't know you were coming. You just they didn't know I was coming. They, they, yeah. they were full of, for liturgies, for vespers, for just private prayer and devotion. 
and especially of young people. Really? Um, I saw a lot of young people. And if you you look at the footage, if you look at the film, you'll see a lot of young 20-year-olds, I suppose, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, alongside some very sort of weathered faces <laughs> that, that maybe even remember some of the, the harder times in the Soviet period. But I, I think what struck me was the devotion and, and the numbers that were in, in the churches. Hmm. This is a story we wouldn't expect. Perhaps it's our own, it's probably a big part of our own bias looking at it from here, and especially when you hear Russia, as you alluded to before, which is in the news much more these days than it had been 10 years ago, negatively presented. Here is a different face of Russia coming from the church is showing the face of the Russian people in this way. We wouldn't expect to see, or maybe we wouldn't even think to look for, a sort of flourishing of a younger generation in the Christian faith in Russian Orthodox churches. So I, I think there are two elements of that. I mean, on, on the one hand, the churches were full uh, as I experienced them. On the other hand, one of my interviewees, my Kucherskaya, I think is how you say her last name. I wouldn't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take your word for it. Uh, she She's a journalist, and she says that at Easter, which is uh-huh. the, the high Christian feast, turnout is somewhere around 8%. Uh, Wait, so daily it's very full, and on Easter it's 8%? I'm not sure what the answer here is, Uh but I think that it must have to do with something about 8% of, I'm not sure if it's 8% of those who identify as Orthodox or of the population. I think it must be those who identify as Orthodox. It's still a large number of people. So 8% of of the number of Orthodox that are in Russia, and that number is mainly concentrated in the places that we went, which were Moscow and St. Petersburg. Okay. So in the capitals. 8% is still... A lot, okay, uh, but it's not a it's not a majority of the uh-huh. population, uh, even though uh, a, a a good majority of the population do identify as Orthodox, <clears throat> and um, but that doesn't mean that doesn't necessarily translate into practice. Understood, understood. We're drawing close to the end, so I want to just ask you a couple other questions about yourself. Like, you went to NYU, studied film and television. What's the step from NYU film and television to doing what you're doing now? How did you end up doing this? I became a Catholic at university. and At NYU? At NYU hmm. during my second or third year. And I was studying film and television production and journalism and philosophy. And I said, well, my trade is media. Uh-huh. And what I'm interested in is the Catholic Church. And how do you do both? <laughs> and moving to Rome and covering the Vatican was sort of the only logical conclusion that I could come up with. Was that your first gig? It was. Yeah. So you're continuing on in in that. I've been, I graduated about 10 years ago. I've Uh been in Rome nine years. Okay. What other kinds of projects would you really be interested in getting involved in coming up in the future? You finished this one on the letters for Lake Como. What might be some of the next ones? I have a few ideas for other documentary projects, uh, one of which would look at uh, maybe the new urbanism mm. as as almost an extension of this current project on technology because uh, so many of the same people, who Catholics who, who wrote about technology in general, also looked at how cities were, were designed, communities were designed, living spaces were designed uh, in terms of how those living spaces not only uh, were conducive or not to community life, but also how they were conducive or not to cult. Mm. So uh, medieval cities, for example, were built 
functionally in the sense that the center was the piazza, and mm-hmm. we see this in Italy all over the place, mm-hmm. with usually the town hall and the duomo or the, the church, the main church of the town, on the main piazza. So the idea was people would gather and spend time with one another in this public spaces that also were at the home of the the, the sort of highest activities uh, that humans could, could do, uh, worship uh, and politics, I suppose. Unlike this project about technology, which I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what the practical answer is. I mean, if it's a, about iPhones, it's probably mo- more often than not put it down and, and talk to your neighbor. <laughs> and go for a walk around the lake. But the technology project may in some cases sound like a, a no, but I think in new urbanism, we're still talking about technology and how people live in human culture, but I think there's a yes in there somewhere, and that is in how there are secular and Catholic architects and designers, urban planners who are interested in these questions and about creating places, designing places that can foster community life. Now, I'm not sure there are sort of medieval towns yeah. that are going to be erected anytime soon but because the the you know sort of the wider culture recognizes that the kinds of cities we live in now especially in the west seem to foster at least do foster uh, are the, what we observe is that they foster a kind of individualism yeah. radical yeah. individualism yeah. where we we seem to live in in these sort of little cubbies and and uh-huh. and, and and far away from each other and we we see the results of that in the quality of our sort of political discourse. There is hope in that there are alternatives being offered by people who are thinking about this. I think the current terminology is the new urbanism. Mm -hmm. So I think if I were to look at, uh, in in a documentary or visual way, that maybe the history of cities and what may the future of cities be, what the future of cities might Uh be, then then that would be a very visual way to to, to get at, again, the the same theme that I'm currently looking at. Where can people find out more about your work online? Well, I have a, a personal website, which is robertduncan.net, uh, but my my coverage of the Vatican can be found at catholicnews.com or the Catholic News Service YouTube page. All right. Well, my thanks to you, Robert Duncan, for joining us today on Church Life Today, and thanks to all of you for spending your time with us. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Does debt have you down? Are you worried about your credit cards, your mortgage, or keeping your car? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union can help. Our people are trained to be financial physicians. They can give you a checkup, help you to heal, and then stay healthy. Don't be embarrassed. It's why we exist. When your body is sick, you go to see a doctor. When your finances are sick, you go to see the friendly folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits?